listening to the Filmmaker Happy Hour on X-Ray FM, KXRY Portland, an interview show that talks with filmmakers and film festival directors about the state of cinema in Oregon. Today on our show, we talk with the angry filmmaker, Kelly Baker. You can also catch him at the McMinnville Short Film Festival, February 10th to 13th, where he will be the keynote speaker, or on his website, angryfilmmaker.com. This is Phil Bussey on X-Ray FM. It is our new show, The Filmmaker's Happy Hour. I'm joined by Kelly Baker, who just raised his glass uh, to me. What did what that look like? Uh, something brown, something, is that a whiskey? It is a whiskey. Camp 1805 out of Hood River. They call it a downstream whiskey. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I like it out there. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, they, it's a really nice distillery. They really not make a nice whiskey out there. Um. We could talk about whiskey, but we are going to talk about angry filmmaker and 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 Kelly's uh, long long career, uh, decades you are counting now um, of filmmaking, <laughs> film teaching, film editing. Um, how do you how do you introduce yourself? <laughs> you know, and there's there's so much room within that in terms of I mean, you are you are a decidedly fiercely independent filmmaker. Absolutely. And um, what does that mean to you? What is what is where does the independence come from? I mean, creative, financial, all the above. What's 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 the dominating I, definition? I, was gonna say, I, I wish financial, but, you know, I, I struggle like everybody else, which is why I have the other, you know, why I do the teaching, why I do. Uh, but I, it, it's really creative for me. I mean, I also make my living as a sound designer and I've worked on a lot of larger films and other things. Um, but I usually take all the money that I make off of that stuff and put it into my own work. Uh, and I always tell people when I'm a sound designer, no matter who I'm working with or you know, the, uh, the project, I can do something that I think is really, really cool, but I still have to turn around and say, is that okay with you? Is that, is that what you're looking for? When I'm making my own films, I can do whatever I want and I never have to turn around. Let's um I I want to talk about some of your specific projects in a little bit, but but that dynamic's really interesting to me because um it it can be helpful and hurtful to have collaborators and it can be helpful and hurtful to be independent, right? I mean, because what yeah. I, I mean I mean, agree or disagree, obviously. Um, but I mean I, I find it sometimes, you know, if, if I write something or I produce something and I think it's amazing, it's great to have the feedback sometimes before it hits the general audience. Sure, sure, no, absolutely. And when I make my own films and write books and everything, I have a group of people who I trust and respect who look over my work and you know we will discuss it. Uh, and so it's not like I'm out there all by myself. I do have people whose opinions I value. And then when you're working for, for somebody else, um, how, do you, how do you deal with swallowing your pride or, or your, uh, how do you deal with taking direction that you feel like is maybe not uh, the strongest artistic path forward? Basically, when we come to a disagreement, I will give them my opinion because they're paying for it. If they choose not to follow what I say, it's their movie. And so I will execute it to the best of my ability you know, even if I'm not wild about the choices that they've made, uh, it's it's not my film. 
That sounds like wisdom earned. Pretty much. It's been a, it's been a long 40 years. <laughs> Let's dig back a little bit to that. So um, you, you, you've had a, a, a number of successful movies and movies that you've made successful. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because you've done a lot of your own distribution and, and, and marketing. Um, put a bird on it. Uh, 1999 Bird Dog. Uh, 2005 kicking bird um <laughs> i know that that was that was a cheap portlandia joke there it was it was um tell us uh is there a genre is there a storyline is uh, that that you operate in or is each film standing on its its own uh, i i believe that every film stands on its own that is always my intention um, with some of the writing that I do and a couple of scripts that I have that I haven't shot yet, uh, characters actually reappear uh, from some of the earlier stuff, which I find kind of fun to, to mess with. But um, for the most part, I, I believe that, you know, the features that I make and even the short films I've made, because people are always asking, you know, are you going to do a sequel? Are you going to do, are you going to, and it's like, no, I have told this story, I'm done. Uh, usually with those characters as well. Uh, they, I've taken, they have taken me to where they want to be. Hmm. Um, and and how, let's let's go back in the process. Then, when how do those characters show up to you? Do they show up fully formed? Do they show up uh, as as uh, you know, sort of a puzzle pieces from from people that you know or experiences that you're having right then? Where how do they come to you? Um, I always tell people, you know, I mind the past, but I don't live there. Uh, so my own past is like with Bird Dog. Bird Dog briefly is the story of an overeducated used car dealer out on 82nd Avenue who comes into contact with a vehicle, an old car that may or may not have information in it that the dikes were sabotaged to destroy the city of Vanport uh, back in 48. Um, my father was a car had his own car lot out on 82nd Avenue and there was a, an amazing group of characters that would you know come by and see him uh, some of them populate other parts of my work but I was always fascinated by the story of Vanport uh, which is not told mostly uh, and there's a line in the film where one of the characters says to the main character your old man and I spent three days out there filling up sandbags trying to help shore up those dikes so it wouldn't be sure and that was my father mm. Uh, he had friends out there and, you know, and when the city was destroyed, he, it, it hurt him a lot. Uh, and I just kind of thought what an interesting idea for a film. Yeah. And, and um, talk about that a little bit. I mean, the, the, take us into that movie a little bit deeper. I mean, so, so the story of Vamport uh, for, for, for those who don't know it, because it's not a history that's told uh, often enough. Right. Uh, and it is, it is, um, strangely not really part of uh portland's lore when we talk about portland it is it doesn't get raised that much and it was it was a massive disaster and there there's some some really um uh, uh uh menacing i don't know if that's the right word but racial uh uh, uh ramifications to it so uh, absolutely why don't you tell the story and and and, and tell why i what, what was telling the story of vanport at the heart of of bird dog i mean or or well, first off, I want to make sure that everybody knows Bird Dog is a dramatic film. It's a fictional feature, right? It's not a documentary. I took a lot of things that I had read about and in integrated them into the story. But or uh, Vanport 
uh, existed halfway between Portland and Vancouver, hence its clever name, Vanport. Uh, and it was built in the 1940s to house shipyard workers for the war effort. And Henry Kaiser was very instrumental. He basically helped put it all together. Um, and people came out from all over the country because remember we were in a depression coming out of the depression, uh, but a lot of the people that lived out in Vanport would be, you know, they were African-American, they were Hispanic, they were what people would refer to as poor white trash from the South. And the people of Portland did not want them here. I mean, Portland has a huge history of racism and as does the whole state. Uh, and once the war was over, they basically said, shut down that town, that city, and send all those people home. Because Vanport never had its own government. It had its own schools, uh, it, its own daycare. It had a 24-hour daycare in the 1940s. Uh, Portland State University started as Vanport College. Uh, my father, I found his ID card for Vanport College when he came home from the war. Um, and so, like I said, it was this amazing town, a city, but it had no government of its own. And so you couldn't, you couldn't just shut down a, a city of 40,000 people. Uh, and then in uh, spring of 1948, we'd had a very wet winter and a dry, uh, or and a, uh, I guess it was a dry spring, uh, but basically the snow in the mountains was melting and the Columbia was rising. And uh, Vanport was surrounded on three sides by dikes. It's out where Delta Park is now. And uh, it was a Memorial Day weekend, 1948. Uh, one of the dikes gave way and the entire city was flooded in, in hours and destroyed. And, you know, the city never really <clears throat> said, oh, we'll take you in, you can move here, you can. It was just kind of like, oh, well, see ya. Uh, and a lot of people were left uh, on their own. So that's the basic story. And, and what was the reception, um, you know, so, so this, the movie came out almost, you know, almost a half century, 50 years later. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and, and certainly uh, there were, uh, you know, probably still some, some uh, persons living that had lived through this. Um, there are people in the film who were at Vanport. Oh, okay. And, uh, and actually, my production designer, Teresa Tamiyasu, her parents had lived in Vanport. I mean, so there was, there was an amazing amount of connections uh, on the film uh, with people who had actually been there or relatives of people who, who'd lived through there. Um, and it's interesting, uh, Willamette Week, if I can say this, gave me the only good review they've ever given me. Uh, they have film critic there really, really liked it. Uh, everybody else in the Portland area, not so much. It was not a very popular film. The film has done really well all over the country, uh, but somehow in Portland, um, and we played for a little while at the Cinema 21. Tom Ranieri over there was fantastic uh, with that. Um, but, you know, the reviews and stuff, were, and I had people talk to me later on uh, who'd seen the film saying, you know, I was so far off base and what was I doing with all this stuff? And, you know, so, uh, but I, I, I never really, how do I put this? I never expect uh, my work to be uh, liked, I guess, especially in my hometown. Well, and, and, and that gets us maybe to uh, your moniker, uh, the angry filmmaker. Right. <laughs> I, I, it, it, you know, which is so surprising. So our paths crossed recently. Uh, you are teaching a class at Pacific University uh, and, and that's your title. You're not, you're, you're a nice guy. I am. Um, <laughs> the angry filmmaker, I was actually named that by a bunch of other filmmakers. 
Uh, and so it's like, I didn't make it up, but I, I kind of embraced it. Uh, and part of it is the whole thing with uh, independent filmmaking. Independent filmmaking, I think is alive and well. Independent distribution is a joke and it really doesn't exist. No matter what people tell you. And when you go to the theater to see an independent movie, you know, $6 million with a bunch of Hollywood actors is not independent. The Sundance uh, Film Festival is kind of a joke and I've called them out a few times on my blog over the years. Um, but I'm angry at the situation where how do we get our work out? What do we do with all that stuff? Because, and more and more door, doors continue to close on us. Uh, you know, Netflix now will buy your film, but they take it over if they do buy your film. They take final cut. They can rearrange anything and make it what they want. Uh, Amazon for a long time stopped showing uh, real independent films. Um, and so, like I say, we have the internet, we have all these other things, but it's getting harder and harder to get our work out there. And that's, that's a big part of the angry filmmaker. That's that's a really interesting distinction. That distinction between independent filmmakers and independent distribution. I want to pick that up when we come back from a music break. Kelly Baker is a filmmaker, and and really in the consummate sense, in terms of uh, from 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 filming to editing uh, and and doing all the jobs in between, uh, and and is going to hopefully come back and talk to us about. Uh, film festivals and film distribution give us some insights but let's take a little let's take a little musical journey here uh what what have you got for us uh, it's a song uh that i truly love by casey neal and the norway rats called when the world was young and it's from the, his record goodbye to the rank and file he's a local guy and i love his work i've, I've got just about everything he's ever done let's take a listen when the world was young the rain was never ending The mud caked our boots And the river rose so high When the world was young We never stopped to look around us Or savored the beauty It was just scenery rolling by Out the wind
This is Phil Bussey. It's the Filmmakers Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm joined by filmmaker Kelly Baker. Uh, and and before we listen to Casey Neal, just listen to Casey Neal, we were, you were making the distinction between independent filmmaker and independent distribution. You know, and I, and I think um, said something that uh, was, was, was really uh, essential and, and perhaps surprising. I think a lot of people would assume that with the internet, and with uh, all the different platforms that are out there, that distribution would have become easier. Um, but uh, yeah, you're, we're on radio, but you are here shaking your head. You are shaking your head. No, um, let's I don't want to interrupt. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about how you, because you distributed very in a, in a, in a, in a, a punk rock band kind of way for a while there. Yeah. Um, and then I, I would like to talk, I'd like to hear about that. And then I want to also hear about um, film festivals that you like and that you do find are good distribution jumping off points. But mm -hmm. let's start with your, your, your life in a van with a dog. I spent seven years off and on, two months at a time, and I do it twice a year. And I would book uh, art house theaters, college campuses, uh, media art centers, where I, I even booked bars. Right, wherever they would let me show my films, I would show up, me and my dog Moses. And Moses was a 120 pound chocolate Labrador. And we basically would live in the van for two months at a time. And I would do about 12 to 14,000 miles on each trip. And I would crash on you know, people's couches. We'd sleep in Walmart parking lots. I mean, whatever it was to get the word out about films. And I also, you know, had a email sign-up list and, and all of that other stuff. And it helped me build the list. I sold a lot of DVDs out on the road. Much, you know, and, and like I say, I, I totally tore that page out of the punk rock handbook, you know, and I just, I made these films myself. And I took them out there. And what I found was that people liked them. And we would have good screenings. And maybe the first time I was in a place like Omaha or Austin or whatever, you'd have a few people show up. But I'd come through a year later and those same people would be back and they would have brought people with them. And it really, you know, it, it, it really worked in that way. Um, you know, and, and it was just, it was really like an audience at a time. Uh, is, and I found that satisfying and also really tiring. Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting. You're showing your, your movie, you know, uh, a few dozen times. And, but that intimacy for the audience and that, that special event, right? That you can't experience this uh, sitting on your sofa. You have to be there. The filmmaker's there. Um, you know, I used, to, I used to joke with the audience about, you know, come out and see me. I mean, would Martin Scorsese do this? Or would Spielberg do this? You know, you never got to see the Beatles, but now is your chance to see me before I go away and stop doing, you know, I mean, I had all sorts of lines like that. Uh, one night, uh, I was really upset with how, how small the audience was because the venue uh, really did a bad, a really bad job promoting it. And so I ended up after the first show, I took the entire audience out across the street for beers. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, 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 and we had a great time over there. I said, I'm not going to take questions after the movie. We're all going to go across the street and we're going to have a beer and you can ask me whatever you want there then. Uh, and so it was really kind of an unorthodox way to do it, but it felt right uh, for me. And it felt, I, I felt like I was doing what I should be doing. No, that's, I mean, from, from an audience perspective, that had to feel pretty magical too. And I did buy that first round. Luckily only one round. 
Hey, and and um, along that, uh, can you pick favorite theater or venue in in Oregon? I mean, you've 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 been in so many. Um, I, I you know I have to be careful with that. I mean, locally, you know, I love the Hollywood, I love the Clinton Street, and I love the Cinema Twenty One. I mean, and those three places have all been so very very good to me. You know, I, I don't want to single out a whole lot of other places only because um, some of the places are gone now. Some of the, you know, there's new places, new blood. I keep uh, looking at the Salem uh, Cinema down there, and they're showing a lot of really really great stuff. I just one of these days have to you know get out of my my cave and go down and see some of their films because they seem like they do a lot of great events. Oh, and the yeah, Northwest yeah. Film Center. See, I almost blew that one too. The Northwest Film Center has always been a great supporter. Um, and and now you you're you're going to be talking at uh, McMinimum's uh, short film festival. Um, uh, McMinnville. It's, it's McMinnville. What, did McMinnville. I just say McMinnville's? Yeah, you did. You're thinking it's happy hour. You're thinking let's have another one. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm at the I'm at the McMinnville Short Film Festival. Thank you. Yes, McMinnville. Yeah. <laughs> um, and which is which is an, an interesting and and hopefully up and coming festival. And 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 uh, there's a couple in Oregon that are only doing short films. Uh, right. There's one out in Baker City, I believe, that's only doing short films. Um, first off, what do you like about the short film format? And then second, what are what do you know what you're going to be talking about at the McMinnville uh, Short Film Festival? Um, I love short. I started in short films. I made uh, eight short films before I made my first feature, uh, and it's a great way to learn. It's a great way to really hone your craft. If you can entertain an audience for seven minutes. You know that's not an easy thing to do, and you know then you have to expand it out to uh, to a full length feature. But I was able to experiment and try a lot of different things with my short films, and I, I see a lot of other filmmakers do that too. Too many young filmmakers just want to make a feature, and they don't have the tools yet. I mean, it's storytelling, like like any kind of storytelling, any kind of uh, art form. This is also a craft. And the more you do it, the better you get. Uh, I would never have thought about making a feature right out the gate. I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough. I didn't have the chops. I didn't have, I mean, there's so many things that I, I did not have. And doing all the short films, it's, it's like writing short stories. You write a bunch of short stories and then you'll try to take on a novel uh, at, at a point. So I, to me, short stories are important and you get to see a lot of new talent and a lot of people, because not everybody can fund a feature film. Yeah, but they can put together a little bit of money and you know, and do a lot of interesting stuff with short films. And that's why I love short films. I have seen some of the coolest stuff all over the country. Uh, and it's stuff that I would never have imagined. You know, once you see it, and it's like this movie's a minute and a half long and it is hilarious and you know, things like that. So I think that that's, that's uh, really important with the short films. What am I gonna be talking about out there? I'm not supposed to reveal that yet. That's no supposed spoilers. to be a big surprise, uh, you know, at the festival because I am the keynote speaker there, and I'm going to be teaching a workshop as well. That's great. That's great, and it's it's um, we're coming towards the end of our our happy half hour here. Um, I want to talk a little <laughs> can bit can about. I get a the... Can I get a refill real quick? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, the film festival model. Um, I mean, you you you. Uh, you, you, you took Sundance to task a little bit earlier uh, and, you know, and Sundance really has become yeah. a marketplace uh, of right. sorts, but um, 
what are, are there film festivals that you that you enjoy and 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 what do you see as the virtues of of film festivals in terms of that again going back to that idea of independent distribution well a lot of times now because so many doors have been closed with distribution the only way to get your films out is through film festivals uh, and I'm one of those guys who I would show up at a film festival, not only was my film screening, but I'd have a suitcase full of DVDs to sell or t-shirts or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, and it was always, I use film festivals and I think they're great to promote your work. Um, do you make any money at film festivals? Absolutely not, unless you've got a suitcase full of stuff that you're selling, right? Um, but it's a way to get your work out. And if you can go to the festivals and sit in an audience while your film is playing, it's amazing what you learn as a filmmaker, as an audience member, what's playing, what isn't, because if, if, if they don't know you're in the theater or even if they do, you know, um, they're gonna let you know by their reactions what's happening. And you can meet film, uh, people at film festivals who can help you with distribution, uh, but you also meet a lot of other filmmakers and maybe you can pull things together and start putting your own stuff out that way, compilations of short films and things like that. You know, it's, Really, you know, I, I will use the a paraphrase something that I don't know if Henry Rollins ever said, but he should say, which is, you know, you have to get together and just do this stuff. Nobody's going to hand you anything. And that's what I love about the whole punk aesthetic. I'm an old punk, but, you know, it's that whole DIY. You have to do it yourself. Stop sitting around and waiting you know, for that phone call or that message, go out there and put your stuff out in the world and, you know, see what happens, but work on it every day. And, 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 and you have, you have done that very consistently. Um, I, I want to ask one last question and that is um, what's an essential film to you? What, what, what film would you say has been essential one or two? I, I to um, me, to me personally. To you, yeah. To you. I have, I have three films I watch every year. Okay, let's hear them. Uh, and I've seen them a ton of times. Uh, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, because that's just creepy as I'll get out. I love that film. Um, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Henry Fonda is the bad guy, and Charles Bronson can act. I mean, two things I never saw before. Uh, and the third one would be uh, Amadeus uh, from the Saul, from the Saul's Insane. It is an amazing blend of sound and picture. I believe that in my mind, that film is almost perfect. And people will watch that film and say, well, I don't like that kind of music, but God, it was really a good film. So to me, it transcends uh, what expectations. But wow, that was, that was, a, that, that Amadeus was a surprise one. I, I will, I need to go back and, and watch that. That is, that is fantastic to hear. Kelly Baker, thank you so much for taking the time and, and, and uh, sharing your whiskey with us for the Filmmaker's Happy Hour. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. Don't forget to send them to my website, would you? Oh, uh, what well, you, you send us. Give us the URL. Uh, the URL, it's uh, angryfilmmaker.com. And there you can read all about me. You can buy my merchandise, get one of my books. You never know what somebody's going to want. And, 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 uh, and, and catch up with you and hear the surprise keynote at the McMinnville uh, Short Film Festival. I like how you're really emphasizing that now. I, and I think that the only reason they asked me to come and speak was they found out that my parents met there in college. So I must have some kind of, uh, you know, love of McMinnville or something. Cosmic connection, as it were. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. 
The Filmmaker Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and X-Ray FM KXRY Portland. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our executive producer and editor is me, Carly Meisberger. Thanks for tuning in.